This week's episode deals with disturbing themes of child sexual assault. Parental discretion is advised. It was still dark out when Joe Gosh knocked quietly on his brother Johnny's bedroom door sometime around 5.30am. Joe waited patiently until Johnny's weary reply came back finally from the other side. It was Sunday, September 5th, 1982, and like every Sunday for the last year, 12-year-old Johnny Gosh had a job to do, delivering papers for the Des Moines Register and Tribune. Ordinarily, Johnny's father, John Sr., liked to accompany him on his rounds, but since he couldn't join him that morning, Johnny had asked his brother to make sure he got up in time. With his job complete, Joe tapped the door again in response and then swiftly headed off to work. It was roughly 30 minutes later when the Gosh's neighbour, Lawrence Hedlin, heard the familiar creak of Johnny's red newspaper wagon being pulled through the back of his garden toward Ashworth Road that ran past the back of his house. Hedlin and the Gorshes lived on 45th Street in a quiet, affluent area of West Des Moines, characterised by expensive houses and large, finely manicured lawns. From there, it was just a short, three-block walk east to the corner of Ashworth and 42nd Street, where Johnny's stack of papers were waiting for him. The paper round had been Johnny's own idea, to help toward the purchase of an off-road bike so he could ride out to the parks at the weekend with his older brothers, whom he idolised. He was a diligent and dependable worker who, early on in the job, had even won a sales competition, which is why it was especially strange when a call came through to the Gosh family home around 7.45am from a disgruntled customer demanding to know where his Sunday paper was. Not knowing himself, the concerned John Sr., who took the call, promptly hung up the phone and called out to his son. When there was no reply, he made a quick dash upstairs to check if he was in his bedroom, but there was no one there. Just then, John heard the gentle pitter-patter of the family's small hazelnut dashhound, Gretchen, and went downstairs to find her ambling about the kitchen, trailing a lead that was still clipped to her collar. John called out for his son again, to no avail. The dog, it seemed, had come back all on her own. Disconcerted by the dog's reappearance, John quickly grabbed his coat and hurried out, to look for his son. At the top of their short road, John rounded the corner onto Marcourt Lane, where at the far eastern end, he spotted Johnny's paper wagon, seemingly left abandoned on the pavement. When he finally caught up to it, he saw it was still stuffed with undelivered papers, but Johnny was nowhere to be seen. Perhaps he was just helping another deliverer somewhere, or he'd somehow lost Gretchen and had gone off looking for her, thought John. 
Spinning about, he looked up and down the deserted street and back to the papers. With the sun now well and truly up, time was running out to get them delivered. And so, John took the handle of the cart and set off down the street to deliver them. It was 8.30am when he got home to find that Johnny had still yet to return. With a rising panic, and a parent's intuition, John told his wife Noreen to call the police immediately and ran straight back outside to look for his son. It was sometime around 9am when the officer arrived at the door, a little too unconcerned for Noreen and John's liking. Their child was missing, they said. To the officer, however, there seemed only two realistic possibilities. Either he'd skipped work for whatever reason, or he'd run away entirely. Had he ever run away before, he asked. A shocked Noreen didn't miss a beat. No, she said. Her son had never run away before. The officer made a quick note in his book. Then, after taking a look around Johnny's bedroom, he set about getting statements from the four other paper deliverers who'd been working that morning's run with Johnny. And gradually, a picture of sorts began to emerge, both mundane and deeply troubling. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Each of the five newspaper deliverers had gathered at the corner of Ashworth Road and 42nd Street to pick up their day's papers and greeted each other briefly before heading off on their respective rounds. Teenager Mike Seskis was just picking his papers up when he saw Johnny walking toward him along Ashworth Road when all of a sudden a two-door, two-tone, blue and silver Ford Fairmount drove slowly past him before stopping and backing up to him. Mike saw Johnny talk to the driver for a moment before they drove off again, turning around to head back east along the road. John Rossi, the only adult paper carrier who was out that morning, was at the corner of Ashworth and 42nd when Johnny picked up his papers and when, moments later, the Ford Fairmount returned. Rossi watched on, as Johnny approached the car again. According to Rossi, the driver of the vehicle, who was later described by another witness as being of stocky build with a moustache and receding dark hair, was strangely jacked up, as though he were on some kind of stimulant. Whatever it was, it was unusual for 6am in the morning. As Rossi continued to watch Johnny talk to the man, The boy then suddenly turned to him and waved him over to join them, asking if he could help give the man some directions. Rossi then made his way over to help, only for the car to suddenly whip out away from him, complete a sharp U-turn and screech off up the road. A short time later, as Johnny made his way north up 42nd Street with his wagon full of papers, Mike Seskus then claimed to have seen a man step from between two trees on the opposite side of the road 
and cross over to where Johnny was walking. Two brothers, out delivering the paper together, were then said to have walked past Johnny as he continued on his way north up 42nd Street before turning west into Marcourt Lane. It was around then, at roughly 6.30am, when local resident PJ Smith, who lived at the corner of Marcourt and 42nd, heard a car door slam outside his window. Smith looked out his curtains to see what he described as a silver and black Ford Fairmount parked up on the street for a brief moment when it shot off suddenly into 42nd Street without stopping at the stop sign and then sped off up the road. And it was a short time after this that the two brothers coming back down 42nd Street passed the turn-off to Marcourt Lane to see Johnny's red paper wagon parked up on the pavement, but no sign of Johnny. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easy to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Just fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist today, and you can switch therapists anytime, if you so wish. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com unexplained10 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com unexplained10. Along with the mysterious Ford Fairmount, a second car with a Warren County license plate was also apparently seen in the area at the time, driven by a man wearing a baseball cap. For Captain Bob Rushing of the West Des Moines Police Department, who reviewed the various statements from the numerous witnesses, none of it amounted to anything especially suspicious. And furthermore, there was no crime scene no witnessed act of wrongdoing, and absolutely no evidence that anything sinister had taken place. For the increasingly desperate Noreen and John Sr., Johnny had disappeared without a trace, which was all the evidence they needed to know that something terrible had taken place, that he'd been abducted. That he might have run away was simply unthinkable. Johnny, they said, was a kind and generous boy, someone who always wanted to find the right present for a friend if it was their birthday, and someone who was dedicated to a job that's entire purpose was to save money. At the time, paper carriers were charged 75 cents for every paper that wasn't delivered. For Johnny, that would have meant forfeiting $27.75 in total, far more than he was getting paid to do the job. However, as many in the West Des Moines Police Department at the time felt, it was simply unheard of that in such a peaceful and affluent area, someone might drive into it 
and snatch a child from the street. As far as they were concerned, Johnny was simply missing and would most likely return before long. Thanks to Noreen and John's insistence, however, the police eventually agreed to mount a search for the boy. By Sunday afternoon, roughly 30 officers pulled in from the Polk County Sheriff's Office, Iowa Highway Patrol, as well as off and on duty Des Moines police, were out looking for him. And throughout the day, as news of Johnny's disappearance began to spread through the neighborhood, they were joined by dozens of others, from friends and family to concerned neighbors. And soon, the media began to pick up the story too, imploring anybody to be on the lookout for a 12-year-old boy described as being white, 5 foot 7 inches tall, weighing roughly 140 pounds, who was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, blue shorts and black sandals, and carrying a bright yellow newspaper satchel. But by the end of that first day, no trace of Johnny was found. The following day, a terrified and bleary-eyed Noreen and John joined over a thousand volunteers at the West Des Moines Police Station to begin the second day of their search for Johnny. Being the Labor Day holiday, everyone from young kids to the elderly joined up to help find him. Together, inching slowly over the land, endless lines of people trudged over thousands of acres through damp and nettle-strewn parkland, batting away gnats and mosquitoes as they went, while others trawled the county's many ditches and roadside verges for any sign of the boy or his clothing. But once again, no sign of Johnny was found. By Tuesday, September 7th, Johnny had been missing for 48 hours, but still the police remained hopeful that he would soon turn up, The fact that no trace of him had been found seemed only to prove further to the police that he'd probably just run away. In the meantime, the Des Moines Register and Tribune put up an offer of $5,000 for any information leading to the discovery of Johnny's whereabouts. Around this time, a photo-fit likeness was made of the man who'd apparently asked Johnny for directions but the police, concerned that it wasn't entirely accurate, decided not to release it. It was sometime on Tuesday afternoon that West Des Moines Police Chief Orville Cooney, who was tasked with overseeing the search for Johnny, informed the press that his department had been contacted by 50-year-old self-described psychic Greta Alexander, Although some detectives believed Cooney should be concentrating on facts alone rather than engaging so-called psychics, Cooney preferred to keep an open mind, saying he was from the old school and would listen to anything first before deciding what to do next. The charismatic Greta Alexander from Delavan, Illinois had a long history of assisting the police on a variety of cases. After hearing about her possible involvement in the Gosh case, Fort Dodge Police Chief 
Don Hensley, recalled how Alexander had helped his team find the body of 18-year-old Roger Habab Jr. and 20-year-old Ruth Ann Phillips, who'd both drowned in separate accidents back in 1980. Alexander had been hooked up via a phone line to a team of divers who were searching a quarry pit at the time. As one of the divers swam about on the surface, Alexander shouted down the phone for the diver to stop immediately and dive down into the water. A short time later, they returned to the surface, holding the body of Roger Habab. Hensley, who described the incident as being real spooky, said that Alexander had been right with about 90% of her suggestions. Polk County Deputy John Hempel, who in 1977 was working the case of a missing postal worker, recalled how Alexander revealed to him not only that they would find the body in the Sailorville Reservoir, but what condition it would be found in, and that three people would find it together. Three months later, the woman's body was found in that same reservoir by three fishermen, and former Johnston Police Chief Robert Brunk also praised Alexander for helping him find the body of Ramon Di Virgilio, who'd been missing for six weeks at the time. Alexander had apparently guided a police officer to the precise spot where his body was found. When asked by the press if Greta Alexander thought Johnny Gosh was alive, West Des Moines Police Chief Cooney paused for a moment before answering that he didn't want to comment. As it transpired, Alexander claimed that Gosh was still alive, having apparently visualised him being kept sitting down somewhere against his will. Alexander told the press that it didn't appear good but remained hopeful, and also that something would happen on Wednesday afternoon. Best Fiends is a new, fun-packed, free-to-download mobile game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures every time you play. With its band of cute creature heroes, match and solve thousands of fun puzzles as you take down your sluggy enemies and blast your way to the top of Mount Boom. I'm very proud to report that I've just broken through to level 101, thanks in no small part to the mighty Woody the Woodhouse. Best Fiends is great to play in your downtime or on a commute while listening to your favourite podcast, and with offline play, you'll never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Look out for brand new events and challenges all year round, so you've always got a chance to earn exclusive in-game items characters and rewards download your new favorite getaway best fiends for free today on the app store or google play you'll even get five dollars worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five that's friends without the r best fiends wednesday arrived with still no sign of johnny and no further clues as to his whereabouts and steadily wednesday turned to Thursday, and despite Greta Alexander's claims, no further news arrived. With Johnny now missing for longer than the requisite 72 hours, the West Des Moines police stepped up their efforts to trace him. 
Cards featuring pictures of the two cars mentioned by the witnesses were sent out to all local law enforcement agencies and some neighbouring states too, while friends, teachers and classmates were interviewed in an effort to try and establish the boy's state of mind at the time. As for Noreen and John Sr., they were told to simply sit tight and wait for more information. It was just over a week later, on Monday, September 20th, when 14-year-old Sean Jacobson left his home in Milford, Iowa, roughly 200 miles north of the Gosh's home in West Des Moines, to walk to school. Jacobson had spent the previous week at home, laid up with the flu, and had seemed eager to get outside and back to school. Later that day, Jacobson's father Raymond received a call from the Milford School Secretary to ask why his son had not shown up for his classes. It wasn't long after that that a pile of school books was found, tucked under a lunch pail near a water-filled gravel pit to the west of the town. The books were identified as Sean's. Over the next two days, 300 people, including 60 of his fellow pupils, with support from sniffer dogs and a search plane, failed to find any sign of the boy. The gravel pit was also dredged to no avail. Around about the same time, two teenage boys entered a service station in Pipestone, Minnesota, about 90 miles northwest of Milford. Convinced there was something a little off about them, the service station attendant kept a close eye on the boys as they disappeared into the restroom before reappearing moments later only to then hurriedly leave. When the attendant went into the restroom after them, they found a scrap of paper left out by the sink with the words, Help, I've been kidnapped, scrawled across it. After being examined by police, however, it was decided it was unrelated to Sean Jacobson's disappearance. Gerald Shanahan, the chief of Iowa's Division of Criminal Investigation, who'd by then been brought in to help with the Johnny Gosh case, was also shown the note. Sadly, the handwriting was no match for Johnny's either. It was early in the evening of Friday, February 24th, four days after the Jacobson disappearance, that a cattle farmer, whose cattle grazed a patch of land on an abandoned farm about six miles west of Salt Lake, 15 miles northwest of where Jacobson was last seen alive, stepped into an old barn to grab some feed for the animals. Inside the shed was an old, unplugged and long-abandoned refrigerator. The farmer, Tom Underwood, later said he didn't know what had prompted him to open the refrigerator door, but when he did, he found the cold, dead body of Sean Jacobson crouched down inside it. Despite being 15 miles from his hometown and being judged to have likely died the day he went missing, the autopsy conducted on Sean Jacobson found no indication of foul play. As a result, the 14-year-old's death 
was judged to have been caused by asphyxiation after either accidentally shutting himself in the random refrigerator he found on a random farm that he'd likely never been to before, or he deliberately locked himself inside to end his life. A single set of footprints leading into the barn, thought to have been Jacobson's, seemed all but confirmed to police that he'd been alone when he died, and the case was promptly closed. By early October, there was still no sign of 12-year-old Johnny Gosh, nor any further evidence to help locate him. And despite Noreen and John's insistence that their son had been abducted, the police continued to resist their demand to escalate his case from being one of a simple missing person to a potential victim of kidnapping. At some point, the Goshes were approached by a man named Kenneth Wooden, a child safety expert who often lectured on the subject at Iowa State University. Like many, Wooden couldn't help but be caught up in the Goshes' story, but more than most, he felt compelled to reach out to Noreen and John. What he had to tell them would shake them to the core. It seemed obvious to him that if Johnny had decided to run away that Sunday morning, there was no way he would have taken the dog out with him. Clearly, as the Goshes had been insisting the whole time, their son had been kidnapped. More than that, for someone who had experience analysing cases of child abduction and abuse, it was Wooden's belief that Johnny had likely been abducted by a paedophile. Back in the early 1980s, paedophilia was not a word that most people were familiar with, and it was one that understandably struck fear into Noreen and John's hearts. Though they'd feared the worst before, this was something they'd yet to fully countenance. Despite the terrifying implications of what Wooden was saying, it was nonetheless reassuring to finally have someone with his type of experience on their side and his next piece of advice would prove invaluable for navigating the months to come. Whatever you have to do to keep the story alive, he told them, do it, because if you don't, law enforcement will move on with their lives and go on their merry way. And so the increasingly hopeless and desperate couple took it upon themselves to keep Johnny's case in the news. In one report, his mother Noreen, her tired and anguished face barely holding it together, turns to the camera and says, Johnny, we love you. We're waiting for you to come back. We're doing everything in our power to get you back. And we're leaving the porch light on every night. A teen solo hiker who was terrorised for days by unknown figures dressed in white. Two cops who quit their job at a local theatre because of unexplained encounters with an alleged demon. An isolated forest in Canada where people keep turning up headless. These are just some of the strange, dark and mysterious stories you'll hear each week on the Mr. Borland podcast. In each episode, Mr. Borland shares real-life, haunting accounts like the case of Haley Zager who disappeared from a hiking trail for 51 hours. 
when search and rescuers finally found her and asked how she survived, she said simply that a friend helped her. She described this friend as four years old, with black hair and brown eyes. This friend was initially dismissed until they realised that a girl had gone missing in that exact spot 23 years earlier and was never found. She was four years old, with black hair and brown eyes. Hey Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark and Mysterious Stories. Download the app today. Soon, reported sightings of Johnny began to flood in from all over the country, including the apparent sighting by one woman in Oklahoma of a young boy who she claimed begged her for help before being swiftly dragged off into a car by two men. None of it came to anything, but Noreen and John would not let up. Now convinced that Johnny had been taken by a paedophile or to be sold to a paedophile ring for use in child pornography, they urged police chief Orville Cooney to do more for their son, imploring him to bring in the FBI and widen the search but Cooney continued to resist their demands, and soon many in the force began to grow tired of the goshes, in particular Noreen, a parent desperate to find her missing son, who many felt was too pushy in her approach. Some even asked to be removed from the case so they wouldn't have to deal with her anymore. The couple were referred to as loons by some in the FBI, and Cooney himself was quoted as saying, I really don't give a damn what Noreen Gosh has to say. I really don't give a damn what she thinks. As a result, public opinion soon turned against them too, and before long, Johnny's case had drifted out of the news. Feeling abandoned by the police and utterly helpless, the Goshes hired their own private detectives at a rate of $200 a day to keep the search for Johnny alive. All the while, to help deal with it all, the couple turned their attention to the specifics of the alleged crime and doing what they could to raise awareness of the dangers that potential paedophiles could pose to children. In time, the Gosh's tireless efforts led to the enacting of a new law named in honour of their son, which compelled police to search for missing children as soon as they're reported missing, rather than wait 72 hours before considering it a possible crime. In the summer of 1983, 18 officers made allegations against police chief Orville Cooney, accusing him of racism and numerous counts of corruption, from fixing tickets for friends to interfering with an investigation into his own son. Cooney resigned from the force six months later. Sadly for Noreen and John, Cooney's departure did little to alter the overriding sense among the West Des Moines police that Johnny was far more likely to have run away than been kidnapped. After all, why would people go around abducting children from street corners when they could much more easily 
prey on the homeless and drug addicts, they reasoned. And still the sightings of Johnny, by then from all across America, continued to come in. By 1984, there were 12 separate apparent sightings of him in Florida alone. Each time a sighting was made, the Gosh's private detectives would rush to the location, but would always be too late to pick up any meaningful leads. One night in February 1984, Noreen claimed she received three phone calls from a boy she was convinced was Johnny. The boy, who she claimed seemed to be drunk or drugged, made little sense, and the calls were deemed too short to be traceable. It was just after 5am, on the morning of Sunday, August 12th, 1984, when 13-year-old Eugene Martin, another Des Moines Register and Tribune newspaper deliverer, left his home in South Des Moines, about a 20-minute drive from where Johnny Gosh had last been seen two years before, to begin his newspaper round. At some point around 6am, Eugene's route manager began receiving calls from irritated customers demanding to know where their newspapers were. Having never had any trouble from Eugene before, the confused manager apologised profusely to his customers, then set out to look for the boy. It had just gone 6.15am when the manager arrived at the corner of Southwest 14th and Highview Street to find Eugene's paper sack with ten undelivered newspapers poking out of it, seemingly abandoned on the pavement, and Eugene Martin was nowhere to be found. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 6, Episode 25, Once There Was A Way, Part 1. Part 2 will be released next Friday, November 11th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.